Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would make little of me, little of us over this next hour, and that you would make much of King Jesus. We pray that he would increase and we would decrease. Amen. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you have just been transported back to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago to the night of Jesus' birth. There you are, standing around the manger, marveling at the little baby Jesus, all swaddled up, Mary and Joseph nodding off to sleep next to you. The shepherds who've just arrived are standing a little awkwardly over in the corner. Suddenly, they approach you with a question. Do you know who this baby is? They ask. Of course I do, you say. His name is Jesus. That's right, the shepherds respond. The, the angels told us to come and, and find him here. The whole night has been unbelievable. We can't stop praising God for bringing us to this remarkable child. But then they ask you one more question. Still, we, we don't really know or understand what's so special about him. He must be sent from God. But do you know why he was sent? What does this baby come to do? I wonder how you'd answer the shepherds. Suppose there are any number of things that you could say. Well, he's, he's come to show us how to live. He's come to heal people, to, to restore sights to the blind, to show God's love to the world, to, to meet people's physical and, and spiritual needs, to restore justice and set captives free and teach us about the kingdom of God. All of those answers, of course, have some truth to them. We, we do see Jesus do all those things over the course of his life. But I wonder if there's a better answer out there, one that gets more to the point, more to the heart of Jesus' own mission. Why did the Son of God come to earth? What was the one driving ambition that fueled everything else he did? And what does any of it have to do with us? Well, these are the big questions at the heart of our sermon passage this morning. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 32 to 52 this morning. Last week's passage ended with, with Jesus teaching his disciples about the high cost of following him. And now we're going to find out how the disciples handle that lesson. What are they going to do with it? We pick up the story in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left 
in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho. As he was leaving Jericho with the disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately, he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. Now, there are a ton of things going on in this passage. But here's what I think the main idea is. The main idea the main thing God in his word is trying to get across to us in these verses. Jesus came to serve us by substituting his life for ours. Those with eyes to see must walk the same road. We're going to unpack this by looking at the passage in two parts. So two points this morning. Point number one, the king's road. We're going to see that in verses 32 to 45. And then point number two, the disciples' road, verses 46 to 52. So point number one, the king's road. The section begins with Jesus teaching his disciples for the third time about his coming death and resurrection. His first prediction back in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33, comes right after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And then the second prediction comes in chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, after the disciples have failed to drive an unclean spirit from a young boy. And bracketing these three predictions are two stories about the healing of a blind man. The only two healings of blind men that Mark records for us in his gospel. The first healing comes in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, when when Jesus, you'll remember, gradually restores the sight of a blind man. And the second comes in our passage, when Jesus instantly heals 
the blind beggar Bartimaeus. And sandwiched in between both of those healings, you get these three predictions of Jesus' death. And following each prediction, Jesus takes his disciples aside to teach them about what it means to follow him as a disciple. So after the first prediction, he, he teaches them that a true disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after him. After the second prediction, as the disciples are arguing about who among them is the greatest, Jesus teaches them that the one who is truly great must be last and servant of all. And now here in our passage, we get this final climatic, climatic lesson on suffering and service. And the point has been to help us see discipleship with Jesus in terms of a journey. We see this in the opening words of, of verse 32. That preposition, on the road, has been a phrase that Mark's been using over and over throughout the last three chapters of his gospel. We see it in chapter 8, verse 27, chapter 9, verses 33 to 34, chapter 10, verse 17, and now twice in, in our passage this morning. And so as the scene opens, it's no surprise that we find ourselves once again on the road with Jesus and his disciples. But this time, the, the road is more narrow, the, the mission more focused, the journey more urgent, and the clouds forming on the horizon more ominous. Jesus knows every step closer he takes toward Jerusalem is a step closer to the cross waiting for him there. So this is, this is no triumphant procession into Jerusalem. This is a death march. This has the look and feel of, of Frodo and Sam walking into the gates of Mordor, not frolicking around in the Shire. Look at how Mark describes the scene. Jesus is no longer walking among the crowds or with his disciples, but where is he? He's walking out ahead of them by himself leading the way, striding on ahead with single-minded resolve, knowing what's waiting for him at the end of the road. Not a crown, but a cross. He looks determined to die. And this unflinching determination elicits fear and astonishment in those walking behind him. No one no one in the passage except for Jesus can really make sense of why he's marching into Jerusalem like this. And so, as he often does, Jesus pulls the 12 aside to interpret the situation for them. This is the most comprehensive of the three passion predictions, including not just Jesus' betrayal and death, but also the role of the Gentiles and the physical abuse that he's going to experience from them. The Son of Man, the, the Jewish Messiah, will be handed over to his own people, and they will be the ones who hand him over to the Roman authorities to meet his humiliating death. And just as he finishes describing the devastating manner in which he's going to be killed, two of his closest disciples, James and John, the two guys who were, two of the guys who were with them on the Mount of Transfiguration, take Jesus aside and make one of the most tone-deaf, boneheaded, self-centered requests in all the Bible. I mean, Jesus has just finished telling them about how he's going to suffer and die, and their immediate response is, 
hey, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask you. When you take the throne, we want you to give us the best seats in the house. I, I mean, the disciples have had some pretty cringy facepalm moments in Mark's gospel, but this one really just takes the cake, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, come on, guys, read the room here. James and John have got some serious selective hearing. Apparently, all they heard was that after three days, Jesus was going to rise, and they assumed that that meant he was going to rise to power as the Messiah. And immediately, they start envisioning themselves rising to power too. But what they completely failed to see is that the road to the crown leads through the cross, which is why Jesus categorically dismisses their request in verse 38. You have no clue what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? The cup, the, the cup and the baptism here represent the great suffering and trial that Jesus is about to face. In, in the Old Testament, God's divine judgment and wrath is often described as a cup of wine that causes people to get drunk and stagger. So we read in Isaiah 51, verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Similarly, Jesus is using the, the image of baptism in these verses to depict the waves of death that he's about to be plunged into. You want to see with me in my glory? Seriously, guys? Are you able to drain the cup of God's wrath down to the very dregs and be plunged into its depths with me? That's, that's what Jesus is asking James and John. And James and John, bless their little hearts, without skipping a beat, respond, yeah, we're good. We got it. I mean, again, these guys are so blinded by their own ambition that they fail to see that there are no shortcuts to the road, on the road to glory. Which Jesus tells them in, in verse 39. Their road will lead to their suffering and death too. Of course, the, the disciples' suffering will be different than Jesus. Only Jesus will bear the divine judgment of God in a, a substitutionary way. But as Jesus has already taught us, anyone who would be his disciple must be willing to take up their own cross and lose their life for his sake. Only then will we save it and get the glory in the age to come. But it's not his glory to give out, Jesus says in verse 40. It's, it's his father's glory. So once again, we see Jesus submitting to the road the Father has sovereignly laid before him, the Son refusing to usurp his Father's authority. Well, at this point, the rest of the 12 disciples, the, tw the rest of the 12 come back into the picture, jealous that James and John have, have gotten to Jesus first and tried to gain the upper hand, an unfair advantage. 
They're not mad at James and John because they were being so self-serving, but because they beat them to the punch. They, they wanted those front, front row seats for themselves. And so once again, Jesus takes his disciples to school for another lesson on the upside-down values of his kingdom. Notice how he basically, in these verses, just blows up every notion of leadership and greatness the disciples take for granted. Jesus describes the Gentile rulers of his day as tyrants who use their power to lord and domineer over their subjects. Uh, other translations say that, that they exercised their authority for their own purposes and glory, which is what tyrants do. Tyrants don't exercise their authority to give and create life. They use it to squeeze the life out of those under their rule so that they can serve themselves. But Jesus calls his disciples to exercise a different kind of authority in these verses. And yet, in their jockeying for rank and precedence, the disciples were actually pining after and imitating the very kind of, of authority that their Gentile rulers practiced over them. And it's tempting for us at this point in the story to, to kind of point our fingers at the disciples and the Gentile rulers and to see them as the bad guys and to thank God that, that we're not like them. The natural tendencies of our hearts and the profoundly pharisaical post-Christian cultural waters that you and I all swim in teach us to think this way. Our culture today classifies everyone as either an abuser or a non-abuser, oppressor or non-oppressor. Those are really the only moral categories that it has left. So if you don't count yourself as an abuser or oppressor, you get to point the finger at all the bad people who are mis, uh, misusing their authority. But the Bible has a way of, of not letting us off the hook so easily. For it indicts all of us for misusing our authority. All of us, to some degree, have used whatever authority God has given us to lord over others and to serve ourselves. You may not be a world leader or powerful Fortune 500 executive, but we all have authority over something, some plot of dirt that God has given you to rule and cultivate for his glory and good purposes. You, as a human being, were created to rule, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Authority goes right to the heart of your existence as a human being. Whether you're a parent, a boss, employer, employee, school teacher, student, church member, elder, deacon, children's ministry volunteer, we all possess some level of authority over something. Even if you're a 13-year-old kid and have rule only over your bedroom or the thoughts inside your head, you have authority over something. And Jesus, right here in these, these verses, is forcing us to examine how we're using it. He's asking us, are you using your authority to create life, prosperity, and vitality for others? 
Or are you using it for your own purposes and glory? Notice how Jesus exercises his authority in these verses. Though he was the Messiah, he didn't lord his power and greatness over his people the way the Gentile rulers did. Instead, the Lord of lords and King of kings uses his authority to give life to his people, not by lording over them, but by becoming a slave and servant of all. Oftentimes we come to these these verses in Mark 10 and we equate leading with serving, perhaps using the popular phrase servant leader. And then we kind of say nothing more. As if the only lesson or application here for Christians is that leaders must be servants. Now, I agree that leaders must be servants. But what exactly does it mean for us to become a servant and a slave of all? And how exactly does Jesus, the Messiah, model that for us? Well, for starters, it doesn't mean that Jesus vacated all of his authority. Nor did he see it as something negative or inherently corrupt. Just think about how Jesus is presented in the Gospels. He tells people what to do, and they do it. Like when he sent the disciples out to preach, or or when he told the demons to go into pigs. He set the agenda for himself and for his followers, whether to travel to one city or the next, just as he does in our passage. Sometimes he gives people what they ask for, but we never see him take orders. Instead, he repeatedly defies the religious and civil authorities, and he repeatedly demonstrates his authority over people, demons, sickness, the elements, and death. He's even described as one who teaches with authority, and when he lays down his life, he says he does so by his own authority. Here's what was different about Jesus' use of authority. Jesus always exercised it with the right purpose and with the right heart posture. His purpose was always to serve the good of others. And his posture was always one of humility and submission to the Father. What we need to get our heads around is how and why Jesus came to serve us like this. And he tells us in verse 45, Jesus came to give life by giving up his life as a ransom for many. This was his one great overarching mission as the son of God. This This is why he comes to earth, why he's marching alone down this road into Jerusalem, not to be crowned king, but to be crucified as one. This is why the verses that Jake read for us from Isaiah 53 earlier describe the king of Israel, the future Messiah, as a servant who would suffer for the sins of his people. Though he's the all-powerful Messiah, the Son of Man doesn't come for his own glory. Instead, King Jesus 
walks straight into the teeth of our suffering and sin, and he bears the cost. Stooping all the way down into the domain of God's wrath to serve his people by substituting his life for theirs and giving his life as a ransom for many. The concept of ransom is extremely important for understanding Christ's work as the suffering servant king. In the ancient world, a a ransom price was paid in order to secure the release of a captive. The captor would determine a price that, that could be paid to buy a slave's freedom or set a hostage free. Today, we associate the term most commonly with with rather tragic events like a kidnapping or money or some other service is demanded in exchange for the safe return of a victim. So you can think of famous famous kidnappings in history like the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh's baby in 1932 in which the kidnappers demanded that he pay them $70,000 for the safe return of his son. Or famous ransoms and works of literature like C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan uh, makes the payment of his life to free Edmund from the evil demands of the White Witch. But Jesus, Jesus giving his life as a ransom raises a really important question for us. I mean, to, to whom must this ransom be paid? And why does Jesus pay it with his life? Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, gives us a clue. You don't have to turn there. In those verses, Paul writes this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul presents Christ in these verses as a mediator, not between us and the devil or between God and the devil, as in some in, some in church history have argued that, but he's presenting Christ as a mediator between us and God. And so when Jesus uses the term ransom in relation to himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he's saying quite clearly that he's paying the ransom of God to God the Father with his own life. But why? Why why must he pay such a costly ransom to God? Well, because ever since the fall, the human condition has, has been one of slavery to sin and corruption from death. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we are now slaves to death and children of God's wrath. That's that's how scripture describes us. And scripture is clear that no man can can rescue himself from this curse because none of us can muster up the, the moral currency required to pay the ransom price. The price tag hanging over our heads is, is too high. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of, of Mark chapter 10, verse 45, is that God himself, through the self-substituting work of Jesus Christ on the cross, pays the ransom to himself in order to receive us back to himself. God alone is the one who determined the ransom amount for sinners. He's the one who said that the wages of sin was death. 
And yet in the greatest act of love and justice and power the world has ever seen, God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, into the world to buy us out of the wrath, rightly do our sin. On the cross, God substitutes himself for us, putting himself where we deserve to be, taking upon himself the penalty that we alone deserved to pay. And in doing so, God satisfies. He satisfies his wrath against sinners. Christ's payment pays the ransom price hanging over our heads down to the very last penny such that he completely removes God's wrath from us. And when we repent of our sins and we put our faith in the work of Christ, we are no longer the objects of God's divine judgment. We are only the recipients of his divine mercy. The cup of wrath gets exchanged for a cup of blessing. This is the very heart of the gospel message. Lose it, and we lose the very thing that makes our salvation sweet and possible. But here's what we cannot forget about what Jesus says in these verses. As glorious as Christ's work on the cross is for securing our salvation, and it is glorious, we must not forget that when Jesus lays down his life for us, he is also setting an example for us to follow. It's not the ransom from any part that he expects us to reproduce. That's, that's impossible for us. That was Christ's mission. It's not our mission. But the same spirit of service and self-sacrifice and humility and concern for the good of others that marked Jesus's life must mark ours. As his people, his church, we must forsake the world's notions of greatness and instead follow our king down the road that he has commanded us to walk, even if it means we must give up our very lives for his sake, just as it would for James and John. And so, brothers and sisters, it is worth asking yourself this morning. Is your life, is your life marked by the same kind of self-sacrificing, self-life-giving service that Jesus models and commands of you in these verses? If we were able to see into the purposes, the priorities, and the posture of your heart, what would we find? Like the disciples, would we find someone who's been become more enamored, enamored and enchanted by the world's notions of greatness? Would we find a heart pining after the high places of honor and power, willing to do whatever it takes to, to get to the top, even if it means trampling over others? Would we find one who selfishly and stubbornly demands that others use their time, their talents, their energy to serve you? How would your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, your church family, how would they answer that question? 
would they describe you as more tyrant-like or more Christ-like? What about in this church? If we took an inventory of, of your service, would it reveal one who comes to church more to serve or more to be served? One who comes to consume rather than to provide? To get for yourself rather than to give of yourself for the good of the body? Brothers and sisters, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And if you are to be his disciple, the king's road, the king's road must become your road too. And this leads us to point number two, our second point, the disciples' road, verses 46 to 52. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus' healing of Bartimaeus in verses 46 to 52 forms a, a, a bookend structure with the healing of the blind man in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. As, as we saw Godwin preach that passage earlier this year, back in January, I think, um, in that healing story uh, in which uh, the man's sight is at first only partially restored, uh, it symbolized the partial sight of the disciples. Although they could see that Jesus was the Messiah, they, they were failing to fully grasp his suffering role and what that would mean for their discipleship. But now, now Mark recounts another healing story, another healing of a blind man to complete that picture of discipleship that he's kind of been sketching out for us with more and more detail over the last three chapters. So the scene opens with, with Jesus getting ready uh, to leave Jericho, which was the last town pilgrims would come to before their final pu push up into Jerusalem. It was about a day's walk uh, from Jerusalem, about 17 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. And so the informed reader knows that Jesus is getting close to the city and closer to the cross that's waiting for him there. And just as he kind of finishes lacing up his sandals for that strenuous climb out of the Jordan Valley, Jesus is met with the unexpected shouts of a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, whose name literally means son, means son of, of filth. Thanks, mom and dad. And his cry, his cry, what he says is made extra surprising because of how he he identifies Jesus. This is the first time that Mark mentions Jesus's Davidic ancestry in his gospel. And yet, here's this blind beggar on the outskirts of Jericho calling Jesus the son of David. But some in, in Jesus's traveling party see this beggar as an obstacle, as an inconvenience standing in the way of Jesus, and so they try to shut him up. But Bartimaeus is undeterred. He cries out again, even louder this time. And this time, Mark says, Jesus stops. He stops, presumably bringing this whole mass of people marching with him to a screeching halt. And this is just a remarkable little detail in the story, given the way Mark described Jesus' urgency back in verse 32. 
At the beginning of this journey, there seemed to be nothing that would stop Jesus from getting to Jerusalem. And now here he is stopping for this beggar. And instead of brushing him aside, Jesus tells the crowd to call Bartimaeus. And so what does Bartimaeus do? He throws off his coat, jumps up, and he makes a beeline for Jesus. And notice what happens next. Look at verse 51. Look down at your Bibles. Do not look at me. You, You need to see this. Verse 51, then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Sound familiar? It should. Same exact question Jesus asked James and John earlier on the road back in verse 36. How did James and John answer? They demanded the king's glory. Bartimaeus, all he wants is the king's mercy. And Jesus then looks at him and says, Bartimaeus, go. Your faith has saved you. And immediately, not partially like the first healing, but instantly, his eyes are opened and he beholds his king's face. And notice what Bartimaeus does next. He doesn't go home. He doesn't go back to begging. He doesn't doesn't go back to his old way at all. No, the text says he began to follow Jesus. Where? On the road. There's that preposition again. Notice Bartimaeus' progression in the story. When we first meet him, he's sitting by the road, verse 46. But by the end, we find him walking on the road. He's gone from merely hearing about Jesus to following Jesus. He's gone from calling out to Jesus to being called by Jesus. He's gone from blind to seeing, from asking for Jesus's mercy to receiving it, from beggar to disciple. Bartimaeus is showing us what it looks like to be Christ's disciple. He is embodying all those that we have met along the road, those who were once spiritually blind, but now by the eyes of faith, spiritually see Jesus for who he really is and now follow him as their king. He encapsulates everything that Jesus has been teaching us about the nature of true discipleship in Mark's gospel. His persistent faith, is reminiscent of others who've joined Jesus on the road. So think of the the paralytic man and his friends back in Mark 2, or the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7. Instead of going back to his old ways, Bartimaeus answers Jesus' call to lose his life by denying himself and following after Jesus, just as Jesus taught in Mark 8. Like a little child, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus recognizes his neediness, his dependency on Christ, and comes to him. And what does Jesus do? He welcomes him. He welcomes him just just as he said he would back in Mark 10. And unlike the rich young ruler, which we looked at last week, Bartimaeus is described as throwing off his coat, presumably his only earthly possession, abandoning everything that tethers him to this world, trusting that when all is said and done, his king would give him back more than he could ever dream or ask. 
And unlike James and John, who came to Jesus demanding glory, Bartimaeus came to Jesus begging for mercy. The disciples came to Jesus with a sense of entitlement, and they thought they deserved honor. But Bartimaeus came to Jesus with a sense of his own unworthiness. He knew he deserved nothing from Jesus. You see, James and John, while physically seeing Jesus, they were spiritually blind. But Bartimaeus, while physically blind, he was spiritually seeing Jesus. All three men in the story were blind. Only Bartimaeus knew it. And that made all the difference. That made all the difference in his life. Because all it took for him to receive true sight was admitting that he needed to see. That was the very thing that allowed the mercy of the king to flow into his heart. The solution to our spiritual blindness, it really is that simple. Recognizing our spiritual neediness and unworthiness and our humble request for Jesus to help us. That is all that he requires to enter his kingdom. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That's all it takes to join the king on his road. That's all it takes to receive his mercy. That is, this is the same message that Jesus has been trying to teach us since we first heard him open his mouth back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Brothers and sisters, it is not enough just to be familiar with Jesus as a good teacher, a prophet, a moral leader, or a good example for us to follow. He is not some nice little mascot or decal we put on the dash, dashboard of our car that we look to in times of inspiration. No, we, we need much more than that. We need him to be much more than that. We need him to be our savior. And as our savior, he demands much more than familiarity from us. He demands that we follow him with an unyielding faith and repentance as our Messiah. And here's the crazy, here's the crazy thing. As if none of what I've just said is not already glorious enough. When we walk this road with him by faith, we not only get the mercy we so desperately need, we also get the glory we so desperately long for. But it is not the glory of this world. It is not the kind that James and John were after. King Jesus has got something better in store for his disciples. He told them, his road into Jerusalem would lead to his death. But the cross wasn't his final destination. For after three days, our king would rise up out of his grave. And 40 days later, he would rise yet again, this time to ascend the throne at his father's right hand. 
And one day soon, he will return to bring those walking on the road with him home to glory. The road to the cross is the same road that leads to the crowd. The prophet Isaiah described the end of our road in those verses that we heard in our call to worship this morning. Listen again to these words. Let them fall on your ears anew. A road will be there and a way. It will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion there and no vicious beast will go up on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee. James and John asked Jesus for glory. Bartimaeus asked for mercy. And Jesus laid down his life to secure both glory and mercy for those who admit their blindness and cling to him in faith. He's the only person to have ever walked this earth never to have been blinded by his sin. He was always seeing, always looking to the Father's glory, always looking to do his will. And yet when he came to the end of his earthly road, Instead of receiving the crown he deserved, he got the cross we deserved. So that one day, all the ransomed church of God might sit with their king for eternity in all his glory. And so as we close, I, I ask you the same question. The same question that Jesus asked James and John and Bartimaeus. It's the same question he is asking each and every single one of us. What do you want me to do for you? How will you answer the king? What will your answer be? Will you follow him on the road? Let's take a moment now to reflect, reflect upon these words from Mark 10 as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper.